When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Rachel Hampton. And I'm Candace Lim. And you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it. Slate's podcast about internet culture. And allegedly Halloween just happened. That was yesterday. We are somehow in November. Um, did you dress up? Yes, I am a pagan, so I dressed up as a podcast host. What about you? I did not because Halloween was on a Tuesday. Also, as I keep mentioning, I'm doing a weightlifting competition this weekend, which means that I haven't been drinking for a month. And I'm just not at the point of adulthood where going out sober is fun. Mm -hmm. So I just I stayed inside. I had a nice, cozy weekend. It was great. And again, Halloween was on a Tuesday. It's a school night. Mm. No, thank you. Mm -mm. But I do think we need to catch up on something else that is actually important, that is near and dear to both of our hearts. And the thing Mm. is, it involves hearts. Mm. I think I know what you're going to say. And let's just say I'm heated. I'm preheated. We are mere hours away from the hometown episode of The Golden Bachelor. So, spoiler, spoilers, if you haven't caught up to Gary's final three, then go ahead and skip forward, like, five minutes. But this final three, Candace, this final three. Okay, so just to recap, all right, our final three are Leslie. She's a very young-spirited dance instructor. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then mm-hmm. we have Faith. She got the first impression rose. She came on in yes. the motorcycle, sang her guitar for Gary, all that. Mm-hmm. And then we have Teresa. She's the one who shared the milkshake with him at the diner. There was like a flash mob that performed for them, whatever. Okay, let's get at it. What are your thoughts on his final three? Are there any snubs, any favorites of yours that did not make it through? Okay, first, can I just say my man Gary has a type because all three of these women are just long-haired brunettes. (laughs) The way my man has a type and his late wife also a brunette. So it makes sense. And, you know, old dogs don't learn new tricks, whatever. I was really surprised. I watched this episode with one of my best friends and we were getting down to that final rose ceremony mm-hmm. and we were so sure that Ellen was going to make it through. Yes. And Ellen is the one who has a friend named Roberta who really oh loved God. The Bachelor yes. and who has cancer. And so she was like, you have to go on. And the thing is, Roberta died before the airing of the season. Yeah. They say that at the end of the first episode. And so I was like, oh, I hope Roberta gets to meet Gary at the yeah. hometowns. And then he eliminated her. I literally gasped so hard i i don't think i've had a legitimate shock like this yeah in a really long time for the bachelor yeah and look i'm not gonna say gary was 
reckless in his decision. You could tell it tore him apart left, right, mm-hmm. center. Who mm-hmm. did you think was going to be his final three? I thought it was going to be Ellen, and I thought it was going to be Faith, and that was going to be Leslie. So I didn't think Teresa was going to make it. She seems very sweet, but he doesn't seem to have the kind of chemistry with her that he has with Faith and Leslie. And so I have a really hot take that might be a bit not generous to Gary. Oh, but my take is that he knows that it's between... Faith and Leslie. Sure. He knows the final two are going to be Faith and Leslie. And so he's bringing along one person that it actually won't be that hard to eliminate. Like, it'll be oh. hard because he he's a nice person, but someone yeah. who he's not actually super worried about. And I think that maybe he thought if he brought Ellen along, he might end up falling deeper. You know, he was like, I actually can't handle that. I don't want to, I don't want to do that. Because he brought along to the week before last, Sandra and Susan. And I love both of them. Sandra is, I think, the favorite I picked as soon as the cast photos were released. And then Susan looks like Kris Jenner and is just so fun. (laughs) And I adore her. But I think he didn't have any chemistry with Susan that wasn't friendly. And I think Susan knew that. And Susan was just having a good time being with a bunch of girlfriends, which was so cute. But I think it's actually smart to have someone in the mix that you're not actually feeling super strongly for. I think your take is shared because it's this thing about like delaying the hard decision, right? Mm -hmm. This idea of like, let me eliminate as much emotional trauma until the very end. Yes. I will say this too. So who I thought was going to make final three was actually Leslie Locke. I'm just going to say it. I think he wants to roast her beans. And then I thought Teresa (laughs) was also going to be in the top three. And I was going to save my last slot for Ellen. So when he gives... Really? Yeah. To me, Faith seemed a little back burner because I know she got first impression rose, but I kept forgetting she got first impression rose. So I was like, ah, I don't know if she'll make it. I think Faith is in game. Oh, you think she's going to win? Interesting. I think she's going to win. Interesting. I think think because the thing is, all the leads tell you this. They always say it at the beginning, if they actually have a good conversation, they say, listen, the person you have the most chemistry with, keep them on the back burner throughout the season because you already know that you like them. You owe it to yourself to get to know everyone. And so I thought Gary being a smart older man was like, I know that me and Faith have something. So I'm going to, I'm going to see what's going on with everyone else. And then I'm going to bring her along. Cause he gave her kind of the best date. He saved the best date for her. Yeah. I mean, it's tough because for some reason, I hear your theory and I believe it. I somehow don't buy that they have equal chemistry with each other. Um, Mm. Faith and Gary. I'm just thinking of it like a one likes one more than the other. Here's my thing. I think Leslie's going to win. I'm not going to say they're going to end up together forever. I think Leslie's going to win. I... We'll also say that this episode is so interesting because (laughs) Gary takes all said woman on a Mm -hmm. amusement park date. And all of these women are kind of in their feel. Some of them decide to say the F word, which is falling in love with you. And it was so (laughs) funny to watch these women say that to him and his reaction to either be like, I basically saying like, I want to say it too, but Mm -hmm. I'm not going to because I don't want to like break hearts. Or he goes the flip opposite and he's just kind of like, thank you. 
um, I appreciate that. You're so sweet. And it's like, mama just got friend zoned. Mm. And it's so mm. sad to watch. But at the same time, that is what actually made me go, oh, I don't think Teresa's a lock. Because he yes. reacted to her a little walls up. Yes. And I was like, oh, interesting. Yes. yes, that's why I thought that Ellen was going to make it. Because the previous week, he did that thing that we now know is his little tick, where he says, that's my girl. You're my girl. And he said that to Ellen last Ooh. week. So I was really shocked Ooh. when he eliminated her. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, so as you can tell, guys, we're getting heated, but that is Golden Bachelor until right now. I have to say, now that we're officially going into hometowns, I am watching live. I am refreshing mm-hmm. the Bachelor Reddit. This is my Super Bowl mm-hmm. plus American Idol finale combined. Oh, 100%, except the thing is, neither one of those things make me cry, and I know, I know mm. I'm going to cry. I know I'm going to cry during the finale. There's no way. There's a preview of him saying, I thought the worst thing that ever happened to me was my wife dying. And this is a close second. And I'm just like, you don't fuck with my man, Gary. Leave him alone. But we have to move on. (laughs) We're going to turn to something that is honestly still emotionally fraught and has been intriguing me and my algorithm across multiple different platforms for a few years. And that is kids pretending to be their immigrant moms. Yeah. So I feel like this style of comedy and content really traces back to the YouTube days of like Wang Fu Productions, Lily Singh, Kev Jumba, you know, all Mm -hmm. these creators who were very much making viral content about growing up and living with their immigrant parents. Mm -hmm. And nowadays I'm thinking about people like Jonathan Chavez, who goes by the TikTok handle at Pack Jonathan and his videos that are along the lines of like Latina moms when you don't know their email password. Or I'm thinking of those BuzzFeed videos that are like Nigerian aunties try other Nigerian aunties jollof rice. Mm-hmm. Or things Asian parents do at the supermarket. And, you know, I can say that as the child of immigrants, I've definitely traced this content all the way back to like middle school when I would go home and watch the Fung Bros or Ryan Higa and be like, oh, wow, there are other people like me, like my family. And this kind of gave me the sense of connection and, you know, which I kind of think ultimately were digital reflections of my own identity. Mm-hmm. And I think something we both kind of noticed in this content is that there are a lot of immigrant mom videos, but not a whole lot of immigrant dad videos even in videos made by male creators. Mm. Also, a lot of these videos are made by the children of immigrants, but not the parents themselves. And so we wanted to dive into this kind of interesting genre of first-generation online comedy with the help of Amy S. Choi. Amy is the co-host of the podcast Mashup Americans, and on today's show, she's going to help us figure out why this content is so prevalent, funny, and possibly healing. We'll be back with Amy after after the break. Hey listeners, hope you're enjoying today's show. If this is your first time listening, then welcome. We are thrilled to have you here. In case you missed it, our show comes out twice a week on Wednesdays and Saturdays. So make sure you never miss an episode like this past Saturdays on DJ Envy's alleged real estate fraud. We talked to Megan, the reporter, QNIF, about all of that and covering Tory Lanez's trial. 
Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. And we're back. So on today's show, we are joined by Amy S. Choi. She is the co-host of The Mashup Americans, which is a podcast that navigates the complexities of mashup identity as they cross multiple borders. And apparently the show is celebrating their 10th anniversary season, which is very, very awesome and cool. And so we're so excited to have you here. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. We're so excited that you're here and even more excited to ask you the question that we ask all of our first time guests, which is what is your very first internet memory? Oh my God. My (laughs) first internet memory. Okay. So first of all, I'm like a touch older than you are. And (laughs) let's see, I didn't have my first email address until going to college. So it was like my... Senior year in high school, my big sister's, like, nerdy boyfriend at the time, like, introduced me to this concept called the World Wide Web. And he was like, this is why there are three W's. That's what it stands for. And I was like, this is wild. My first kind of internet memory, it was kind of my first sense that like technical things could have a sense of humor. I went to Northwestern. So I graduated in 2001. I started in 1997. I went to school in the 90s. I was born in the previous century, everyone. And... um, (laughs) The servers for all of the email addresses were like local Evanston restaurants. So I remember mine was like ASC451 at (laughs) heckies.northwestern.edu. And that was like all email in addition to like your northwestern.edu or whatever it was. Like you had kind of two, I don't know, one weirder Mm -hmm. email address and one that was more like a choy. Anyway. And I was, I never thought about it. I was just like, oh, heckies. And then I realized not everybody had one. Like other people had like Jimmy, I don't even remember. But that all yeah. of the servers were named after local restaurants. And so mine was like, I had I had wings for my <laughs> server name. <laughs> well, Amy, I want to fast forward to kind of present day. I wanted to ask, could you tell us a little bit about the work you do now? Like what is a Mashup American and what type of stuff do you guys talk about on the podcast? So we started in 2013. Uh, My background is as a journalist. I came up in print magazines and my co-founder and co-host, Rebecca Lair, who is not with us here today, she has a background kind of in arts development and audience development and business strategy. She was the first 
business development director at WNYC, like kind of in the heyday of early podcasting. And so we became friends and we realized that kind of as we were entering adulthood, like we were in our late 20s when we met going into our 30s and I had been laid off for like the millionth time from yet another, you know, like fancy magazine that I should have been so lucky to be at. And I was like, well, this seems to be like a tough pattern to be in for my career. And, you know, the conversations that we were having, they were about work, but also about like how to be ourselves at work, how to be ourselves, period. And like in all these kind of big kind of cruxy life decisions that come in your early 30s, like I was pregnant. I, you know, trying to figure out what it what like kind of traditions I would want to raise my family in. I'm first generation Korean American. I'm the first person born in the U.S. in my family. Uh, my husband is first generation Colombian Mexican American. So we're like, what languages are we going to try and speak? Like, what are we going to name our kids? How do we kind of see ourselves in the world? And what does it mean to like... <laughs> bringing more life in here. And, you know, Rebecca was facing kind of similar decisions and, and kind of big life choices. And we were realizing that everybody around us was doing the same thing. Like all of our friends were all essentially like first generation Americans in one way or another, or in a relationship or kind of wrestling with what it means to be partnered up with somebody who comes from like a very, very different culture than they do, trying to understand like what kind of traditions from their family they wanted to keep, you know, like your kind of late 20s, early 30s are a part of like figuring out who you are apart from your family in a lot of ways, like what future you want to build for yourself. And we had one of those like Mindy Kaling moments that were like, well, you know, nobody's talking about it. Nobody's doing it. There was like, you know, sometimes like there's the mainstream story, which is like a white male one. Then there was like maybe like a kind of like a little like black vertical that was next to it. That was like, OK, well, black stories can be here. And then maybe one like a tinier one like next to that was like maybe Spanish language can be over here. And then like way off in some corner would be like maybe queer or Asian stories. We were like, no, but that's not how life works. Like that's not how stories work. That's not how our experience pans out. We want to cut kind of horizontal across that. And we were like, well, Mindy Kaling says, why not us? And we were like, fuck, let's do it. Like, so we started in 2013 with a Tumblr, talk about internet moments, uh, <laughs> where we were curating kind of news through our lens of, of like what it meant to be cross-cultural, what it meant to have kind of a really richly varied experience that put some tension on what it meant to be American and how to define what American was. And it was interesting because in that moment in 2013, it was like Barack Obama was president. Like we, I remember so specifically, like that year, food editors were calling it Thanksgivinga, where like Hanukkah and Thanksgiving fell on the same weekend. And like David Chang was on the cover of Savour with like his soy glazed turkey. And we were like, maybe we're obsolete. Like maybe this idea is really like kind of past its prime or like we're already here. And we thought maybe that might be it. And then like, you know, Donald Trump ran for president. And then we realized that like what we were kind of looking in our lives is like an exploration and a celebration was really kind of also a defense of ourselves and like who we were as people. And so we grew from our Tumblr to a weekly newsletter, which we still put out on Saturdays, where we're curating news from around the world with, again, with this point of view on kind of a hyphen America and redefining America. And then we have our website where we are publishing original stories. That's really kind of like a FUBU community, like a forest bias, where it's a lot of tips, like personal essays, humor. And then we started our podcast in 2015. 
Our podcast is really where we lean into like who we consider to be mashup dignitaries, like luminaries that who we've admired. And it's it's everyone from like Margaret Cho was like our very first guest and to Padma Lakshmi, like Nora Lum, like back when she was still making rap videos about her vagina, you know, just like really leaning into like who we thought was interesting, like, you know, like talking to Lena Waithe, like the year before she won her first Emmy and like just exploring who we realized were the most exciting people in like creative fields and thought leadership and all of these different industries. They were almost always all mashups. What we've come to realize over the course of the 10 years is that we are the ones leading the culture. We're the ones on the margins pushing it forward. And that kind of our mission as the Mashup Americans, as a creative studio and as a media company, is to recenter our lens onto these voices that aren't heard in mainstream media so much. Which makes me really excited for the conversation we're going to have today, which is kind of about a phenomenon I feel like has been prevalent basically for my entire time online, which is this kind of image of like the immigrant mom. Mm. And so I wanted to start off here and ask, do you remember kind of the first video you watched online that was centered around this content? Like I kind of think of Lily Singh or Superwoman on YouTube or kind of the BuzzFeed videos where it's like Nigerian mom tries Trader Joe's like jollof rice, Mm. like those kind of videos. You know, this is like a real tender one for me because I think as like a first generation Korean American, I grew up with a strong Korean community. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago and, and my parents were kind of in that first wave of Koreans that came to the U.S. in the early 70s. So I had a lot of Korean people around me, but I went to like a very, very fancy white school. So all of the images that I had in pop culture of immigrant moms, particularly Asian moms, were always so unbelievably racist and bad all the time. And so I think there's like, there's a way in which it took me until like decades to even be able to like seek out or be able to laugh at content that has to do with immigrant moms that exists on the internet and that is truly joyful. Like, I love it now, but I think it was something that always felt like such a sore spot for me growing up that it was like, you just like, I can feel like my body cringe or tense up if I think about that. That said, I don't know if I can remember the very first, but like, <laughs> I think one of my favorite early memes was probably, it was like, Latina middle-aged woman with like a chancla in her hand and there's like an alligator or something trying to come up like a boat deck and she's just like boom like with the chancla and she's like chasing (laughs) the alligator away with the chancla so I would say it's probably along the lines of those I have always loved Aquafina's imitations of her grandmother which are in some ways very much the same. You know, she has kind of a a tough story. Her mom died when she was young, but her grandmother raised her and her imitations of her grandma and when she brings her grandmother onto shows and stuff always just like really crack me up. And I think that that is like something as a 44-year-old woman who only had like internet as an adult, I think I avoided all of that for a really, really long time until it became like safer or funner or more gentle or like the people creating it were doing it out of love and not out of mocking. I mean, Amy, I think you are verbalizing everything I felt when I was 12 years old because, you know, I think in preparation for this episode, I was doing a lot of looking into 
like really big Asian YouTubers around that 2012 era. So this is Ryan Higa, Kev Jumba, Wang Fu Productions, all those guys. Ooh, Wang Fu, I remember. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I remember loving their videos, being like, wow, that's exactly how my mom sounds, all this stuff. And I think there was like the good parts of it, the like relatability of like, oh my God, like me and this guy who's 10 years older than me, like we have the same household, we have the same family dynamics, he gets it. And then I kind of remember that there was a specific video that I watched once and it was by Just Kidding Films and it was called Shit Asian Mom Say. And it was this guy who was kind of doing like this very over-exaggerated imitation of his mom, accent and everything. And I thought, thought it was funny in the way a 12-year-old thinks anything is funny. Mm-hmm. I remember showing it to my mom and just her being like, I don't want to watch this. Turn it off. I don't want to watch this. And I was like, huh, that's that's interesting. What, what nerve am I hitting here? And so mm-hmm. kind of stepping from that person till now, I'm wondering as the years have gone on, do you have like a different take on these videos so far? Like, do you find any join them now? Do any parts of it still seem a little icky to you? They don't seem icky to me when the creators are like the children of or the immigrants themselves. Then I'm like, oh, this is fucking great. Like, you can say whatever you want about your own experience. And does it make me sad if sometimes you're like, oh, no, that feels like a little bit of self-hatred just like got in there, Mm. you know? And also everybody gets to make their art and like internet content is art. And so people like do what you got to do. What I cannot abide by is A, when I see people laughing and I'm like, you're laughing for the wrong fucking reason. You're laughing because of the accent, not because like this like gem of knowledge about like, you know, your cookie tin actually being filled with sewing materials actually rings true to you. You're just laughing because you think that that person's accent is funny. And so fuck you. Right. Like so I still have that response. And then also nobody can make fun of anybody else except themselves unless it's done with like so much love. Like I remember what it was a couple of weeks ago when there was this great video that was floating around. I couldn't even tell you what platform it started on. It was white people hiking. Oh, yes. yes. And it was, you know, it was like black people enacting, white people hiking. And Mm -hmm. that was so accurate and also done with so much love. It wasn't like, look at these white buffoons (laughs) that don't know how to act on a hiking trail. It was just like this, like, perfectly noticed gentle, hilarious, beautiful thing that was actually just like two people, two kind of culture seeing each other and doing the kind of like the gentle ribbing that comes with that. But I think that piece, which was so amazing to me that so many people like that it became like a discourse piece of the day, that to me was so loving. Whereas like, you know, when you see something where it's just like somebody being an asshole about a cultural phenomenon, And I'm like, that still makes me kind of probably outsized mad in a way that like it wouldn't if my own like buttons weren't being pushed. But I think about, you know, just like it wasn't too much later after that, that it was like Fresh Off the Boat was on the air in what, 2014, 2015. And that was like the first Asian American family that had been on TV since Margaret Cho's. Mm, Yeah, she had like All American Girl in 1994 and then nothing until Fresh Off the Boat. It's been a long time. So I think for me, you know, 
what was significant about that kind of Wang Fu moment, fresh off the boat in that 2000, early 2010s period, was that it was also the first time where I felt like, particularly among Asians, and I think this was true for like a lot of different immigrant communities, that it was okay to have really funny representations of yourself. And it was like also it was the first time that there was enough content out there that it didn't all have to be perfectly accurate. You know, it was like, oh, the whole thing about like um, Jenny Yang, she calls them the rep sweats. You know, that like every picture of you and your community has to be perfect when it's out there because otherwise you're just like, oh, yeah, like the rep sweats. I'm so nervous. Um, Is that like you don't have to have rep sweats. Like Asian people are allowed to be mediocre. They're allowed to be not funny because there's enough of us. Like there are people who are mediocre and not funny. And like that's also part of being human and actually really important part of like a cultural shift that happens is that like having a monolithic representation can be as damaging as having no representation. That's such a good point, Amy. And it reminds me of someone who doesn't get nearly as much representation in this kind of first gen comedy genre. And that is immigrant dads. We'll be diving into why moms are in the spotlight after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. And we're back. Something that I feel like came up for me when thinking about this topic was the fact that so much of this content is centered around moms Mm. and not dads. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to ask you, why do you think that is? Like, what do you think it is about the kind of image of the immigrant mother specifically that produces so much content? Having an immigrant mom... (laughs) 
And being a almost immigrant mom, I consider myself like an immigrant kid. I don't know if I consider mm-hmm. myself an immigrant mom, a, a, like a, a half-step immigrant mom. Listen, we tell stories about like what preoccupies us, like what we know, and also like what we desperately need to understand and know more about, right? Like that's kind of a human impulse. And that's what we think about as storytellers at Mashup Americans. Like, why do we think it's so important to recenter our stories on us? It's like so rich and so powerful of like a resource to kind of mine for for more detail. There's just like always more. And I think there's like a basic human truth in that like understanding your mom and where you came from will help you understand yourself. And even if it doesn't feel that deep, I think that has to be like the catalyst for so much of it. Because even if it's just like, you know, write what you know or make what you know, what do you know is like your daily situation that you're coming up with every day or like the things that kind of have either made you laugh and feel joy for your life or that have like scraped at you a little bit and hurt and been confusing. And also who's often the person that they could be causing that or they could be the person that you are sharing all of that with is usually your mom. Also, moms carry all the weight in all of the ways in all of the situations that I'm like, oh, well, there's it's the same reason why, like, at graduation, nobody's like cap. Nobody says, like, thanks, dad. Right. Like, they're all like, thank you, mom. Like, it's it's always about mom. Right. And so I think it's it's probably that same impulse. I believe that it is particularly around this kind of humor and this type of content, that it's that and not just like making fun of women. Because I don't actually sense that that much. I think it's like such a confusing role. And immigrant moms, I mean, there's just so many reasons why and every culture is so different. And like why they immigrated is so different. But like something that was really powerful for us and, you know, powerful us even 10 years into this work and thinking about it so deeply and thinking about our own family so deeply and like doing all the therapy and all the work and all the modalities is on our show this season, which is a, the ultimate guide to a mashup life. One of our guests this season was Lisa Ling. And you know she's also first generation. And she was just talking to us about kind of her and her husband's healing journey and how they were able to really repair to such a depth the relationship with their mothers, so much so that like their mothers basically live with them and their own daughters. And they have this big, chaotic, multi-generational family, Asian family, Chinese and Korean family. With You know, you can imagine how opinionated the every meal is in their house and how they got there, which was through plant medicine. You know, Lisa really just like, in a way that was so beautiful, talked about, we all think about our relationships with our mothers, all the time, right? Like that it's something that's so profound and and at some point in everybody's life I think you whether it's a complicated relationship or a simple one or a beautiful one or hard whatever that is like it's something that you think about, right? It's just like a it's a it's a huge part of who we are. And for her she was like, you know, and I really finally was able to think about my mother as a person and not just my mother and like the kind of huge transformation that happened in her life when she was able to do that. But I think there's something about like the the complexity of motherhood period that that like gets into every aspect of us that of like, of course it is super pervasive or drives a lot of like meme culture, internet culture too. 
everything you're saying has definitely rotated through my head. And something I've been thinking about is like maybe the reason that immigrant children are so good at doing impressions of their parents on TikTok is because they have now realized they are becoming them. And mm. everyone has that moment where you say a thing and you're like, oh my God, my mom would say that. Oh my God, oh my God. And then <laughs> uh-huh. you just kind of realize like, oh yeah, like the thing that birthed me is the thing that I am. And now mm-hmm. I'm going to go on TikTok and talk about it. And you know, I think the internet has kind of interestingly paved the way for a little more discourse and discussion about this way that like immigrant moms and families are represented not only online, but also on the mainstream. You know, a recent example I've been thinking about is Pedro Pascal. He went on Saturday Night Live and he played this character named Mrs. Flores, whose son brings home a new girlfriend who happens to be white. What is she saying? I think there's a lot of brilliance in this sketch. The first one being the fact that it's majority Spanish, which is awesome, especially for SNL, for NBC in 2023 go off. But, you know, I think the other brilliance of the sketch is the fact that they never make fun of Mrs. Flores, played by Pedro Pascal. They instead always make the white girlfriend the butt of the joke. And Mm -hmm. it kind of got me thinking, you know, in a time when being online is about saying the right thing, being very culturally sensitive, what makes first-gen content work in 2023? Is it the fact that it's, like, very accurate? Is it towing the line between making fun of your mom versus mocking your mom like what is it about this time we're in that kind of creates some more comfortable space for that Mm, this is such a good question and I think it's about it's a little bit of the tongue-in-cheek like as you were saying earlier Candice like the when you realize that you're becoming your parents it's almost like the realization that oh like were they right Mm. not just like (laughs) am I doing what they did but like oh actually this thing that like I pushed against for so long, like, oh, shit, maybe they were right. <laughs> you know, like, um, it's the accuracy, but the way that it plays is because the immigrants are never, as you said with Miss Flores, like, they're never being the ones marginalized. Like, the humor works because even when the humor is poking fun, it's never punching down. There's a way in which you're like, oh, actually, you're right. Like, my whole family is obsessed with the second Miles Morales movie, but I love the parent interactions. And it's maybe now because like I'm the age, probably I'm closer to to Miles Morales' parents' age than I am to Miles Morales. But like they joke in the second one when they're like, did she just call me by my first name? I fucking hate that. I hate that. Or like when (laughs) um, like he says whatever to his parents and his dad's like, (gasps) and his mom's like, did you just say whatever (laughs) and I was like that's right your child can't say whatever to you but there's like it's that way of do and like his mom gets annoyed at him because of his Spanglish and how he's getting like a B in Spanish and an A in physics or whatever and I was like oh again this humor works because it feels driven by people who lived this experience and I think maybe that's the beauty of the kids right and like internet memes that feel even when they're poking fun, that feel good to watch because they're being created by the person themselves and could do it with like love and humor and with enough detail that like it doesn't feel 
like you're making fun of a person. You are finding humor in a whole situation. It's a subtle line, but it's what carries all of this humor through. And I want to talk about that line a little bit because, you know, earlier in the convo, Amy, you talked about how when you first interacted with any of this content that had to do with like immigrant parent representation, you kind of cringe in a way. And I definitely agree with you because I used to hate this content. Like I hated anything that involved the words like immigrant mom tries this. Mm. Da, 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 da. And I kind of had to like push myself a little bit and be like, I think this is stemming from this place of like to be the child of an immigrant is to watch your parents be humiliated by adults and classmates Mm -hmm. and other parents Mm -hmm. and teachers and to be a child and to be too young to like defend them or protect them because I'm five. I don't have the language or the understanding Mm -hmm. of like, oh, like you, my teacher are mocking my parent. Got it. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think my question is when we look at this content now, how can you tell when the content is celebratory versus exploitative? Like, what is that line to you? Mm. Well, first of all, I'm so sorry that you had that experience. And I'm so sorry that it's such a relatable one because that fucking sucks. Mm. And I think a little bit, and this is like a mushy answer, but a little bit is like, you know, how they talk about like porn, like, you know, when you see it, mm. you know, like, oh, you know, sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you, you know, when it's bad, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. when it's like mm-hmm. bad news and you know when it's OK. So there's that element to it. I think the exploitative line, you know, that's a question that comes with kind of like all art and all forms. I've really been enjoying all of the Korean moms and grandmas that are on the Internet trying like Trader Joe's frozen kimbap. Mm-hmm. You know, and like when that was going around like a few months ago and like every other video in my feed, which granted is heavily skewed towards like Korean creators and whatever influencers. But like it was sweet. It was fun. Clearly, they're all trying to jump on a trend and get a boost. And it didn't feel exploitative because the characters in it, the moms and grandmas that were eating it and being like, "Uh uh-uh, or like, oh, this is pretty good. Like they all seem to be enjoying themselves. I think the part that is harder for me, I don't want to say harder for me to swallow, even though sometimes it feels like that. When I sense or feel, or even when it's pretty explicit, when I feel like a creator or anybody is somehow apologizing for who they are. Mm. Like it feels fine to me to make fun of it because that comes with knowledge and affection for yourself. Like have to have interrogated something deeply enough to make an accurate and funny joke is like having really interrogated a thing, right? Like you've taken something, turned it over in your mind, like thought about what you were going to say about it, said the thing, and then it was like funny and people found it funny and maybe they learned a little something about you and your family. That to me is like infinitely more palatable and enjoyable than like the kind of anxiety I feel when I'm like, oh, you're still trying to make things for white people. Mm. Or like you're trying to get somebody to like you here. Or you're trying to win some sort of validation by making fun of yourself. And that to me feels like that is much, much less any moms or grandmas that you see on the internet. And they're more the immigrant kids. And that makes me just sad. Yeah, it reminds me of the line kind of between like self-deprecation and self-hate, which is can be blurry in comedy a lot of the times. But it also kind of reminds me of the difference between watching someone like Tyler Perry 
um, kind of depict black women and watching other people do what is functionally similar. Like I remember watching this Pedro Pascal skit and thinking, I actually really usually hate when this happens, when like men dress up as their mothers because there usually seems to be some level of like misogyny involved. But as I was watching this, I was like, I don't get that vibe at all. And I was trying to figure out why. And then I was on Twitter and a poet named Melissa Lozada Oliva was like, why doesn't this feel as bad as other things? And someone commented was, it's because you can tell they love their mothers. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And that just feels so different. Yeah. When it's like sourced in love and not in mockery or Mm -hmm. worse, beyond mockery in like some sort of not even hate for their mothers, but hate from themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is like the the saddest part of all. That's where it gets so hard because the stuff that we're talking about that is also painful. Right. Like those images that we had burned in our heads or like that feeling of being mocked or shamed or not being able to stick up for people. That content is also bad. You know, like it's also mm-hmm. not funny. It's also mm-hmm. not that enjoyable. Sure, you can do it. But like, does it pass the bar for it being rooted in love from it coming mm-hmm. from like a known life experience, not just like a random one off or some stereotype that you heard about? Like, how accurate is it? How true to detail is it? Like, like really, can you pull it off? And that's why I think things like the White Hikers or Pedro Pascal or, you know, like so many of these kind of playful things come off and can succeed is because they're actually just good and funny. So I think we've had some really interesting thoughts put on the canvas today. And I definitely still sometimes hold this reticence about watching, you know, certain immigrant moms on TikTok. I just fear it can be exploitative in any way. But can I admit that, like, I sometimes watch Lily Singh or Jonathan Chavez and, like, other cultures and their immigrant moms? And do I, like, laugh a little bit? Yes, I do. And so I think the question I wanted to ask is, who do you think this content is for? And, like, do you think maybe there's been any healing properties kind of Mm. emanated from that, especially for children of immigrants watching or making the content? Mm, I love that question. Um, I'll answer the second one first because it's easier for me. Yes, healing. I do think so. I think it is absolutely every time we get to rewrite a story of ourselves that hurts us and the rewriting process can be anything from like us interrogating and revising our own life stories to us absorbing new art and giving us new ways of thinking about something that maybe was painful to us, but we see it reflected in another way and see somebody else's response to it. Or maybe that TikTok shows you a dimension of a situation that maybe was uncomfortable for you, but when you see it reflected back, you see like, oh, there's the humor there or there's the love there that like I didn't quite get in my own head, in my own experience. I think it can be so completely healing. Who is it for? I think it's for us. And I think this is like a great part of the mission of the Mashup Americans is we really believe that breaking out again of like a black white binary by breaking out of this idea that that culture cannot be porous, that like that we can't all learn from each other and laugh and and like grow, live, laugh, love, you know, do all the things (laughs) is that we make this for us. 
because we believe that we are the ones creating culture. We are the ones pushing American culture forward. We are the ones pushing great ideas forward. Every kind of Harvard business case study about bringing diversity into a decision-making group is about increasing imagination and collaboration and new dimensions of thought and ways of approaching problems and problem solving. And like, Lord knows we need a lot more solutions in our country about like how to be different and better. And like, if we think that the way that things are happening right now is good, like, like truly, like help us, somebody like put us out of our misery mm -hmm. because it can't, it has to get better for all of us. So I believe that we're making all of this because anything that can kind of help connect us and help us see each other better, whether it's through laughter or through tears or through, you know, any other sort of big human emotion, it can only help push us forward. That all said, like we have a strict rule that we don't, we, we A, we don't work with assholes. We're not going to convince anybody and we are not, that's, this is not our intention. We have no uh, uh, ambition to do so, nor do we have any desire. To, we don't need to convince other people that we are human and that we are mm -hmm. equally human to them and that we are equally deserving of like dignity and like a seat at the table than anybody else's. Which is to say, <laughs> the Mash of Americans doesn't make content for like a white or male gaze or audience. It's just not what we're interested in. We invite everybody who is interested in to our community and to enjoy and learn and laugh and maybe like be moved by our stories that we tell in all different forms. But we don't make it for you. We make it for us. And I think that to me is like when you're saying like Candace, like exactly kind of experiencing or like having the mashup experience, which is like, oh, it's actually like me as a first generation, the the detail of like my home life or like how I was raised or this tradition, that detail, that feeling is is reflected universally across all of these other cultures that are, you know, theoretically so different from mine, but that I have so much in common, like when we, again, cut like laterally instead of putting ourselves into little verticals, is that the, that human experience is incredibly universal. And so what you're seeing and what you're experiencing when you're laughing at like, Another immigrant mom, it's like not that you can only laugh at Asian immigrant moms, is that like immigrant moms can be funny. And like th you being seen in that and seeing that there is that you are not alone, that there's whole communities of people that are having this experience. I think that's just like it's powerful in a way that's hard to state because it makes you realize that like that we're all here in like a uh, culture and society that often tries to tell us, particularly as women and women of color, that that we're not or that we don't matter that that's like a really, really powerful thing to to be able to take, which is also why I think it's so healing. I hope that everybody who might have any sort of pang of guilt for enjoying immigrant mom humor on the internet does not feel that guilt anymore. I don't think it's necessary. And I hope if you do feel it, or if you do feel that like sting of like, uh, like I wish this wasn't here, like you ask yourself why. Like I think it's really, it's it's powerful to think about like, how things have shifted and maybe how things haven't and like why it might be so important to you that like this joke is not made or this joke is and like what that means to you because uh, like all it can be is kind of like a more knowledge about yourself and that just prepares you for the world and like helps you connect in with other people better and that's kind of like what what all of this is right 
All right, that is the show. We'll be back in your feed on Saturday, so definitely subscribe. It's the best way to never miss an episode. Please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple or Spotify and tell your friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can also always drop us a note at ICYMI at slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Sierra Spragley-Ricks, Rachel Hampton, and me, Candace Lim. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's vice president of audio. See you online. Or not.